Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining us to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations offered today will touch your heart and truly show you that your life is worth living. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for rising early in the morning to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Today, Archbishop Sheen will be talking about children. And, uh, you know, with school uh, starting another year, it's uh, a time where we see a lot more children. And you kind of ponder, are they a burden or a joy? Now, if you ask any parent, uh, they usually will answer that question by saying, both. But we know that children are a blessing from the Lord. Sacred Scripture tells us this. Uh, But Bishop Sheen, in his wit and his wisdom, took on that topic. And so he made a program under that title, Children, Burdens, or Joy. And so we're going to enjoy that reflection this morning. And then we're going to continue our catechism lesson. Uh, We're on lesson number 17 out of 50 lessons. And uh, Sheen will be talking about the body of Christ today. Uh, Of course, the church itself. And uh, again, it's one of these things where sometimes our faith is a mystery. But uh, Bishop Sheen, in his wisdom, uh, makes it just simple to us. And so I know every time I listen to one of his catechism lessons, uh, it just becomes more clear about the truth and uh, the beauty of the faith. And so let us now sit back and relax and enjoy this reflection from the 1950s television show, Life is Worth Living, uh, a topic uh, near and dear to our heart. Children, are they burdens or joy? Friends, some time ago we received a letter from New England from a mother who named a baby after him. Fulton is now four years of age. One day the mother calls him, shouts for him, searches for him, cannot find him, nor the little baby sister, aged one. Finally the mother goes to the garret. And she finds the little boy dressed up with his coat and hat on, suitcase in his hand. And she said, where are you going, Fulton? He said, I'm going to New York to see Bishop Sheen. I was named after him. And the mother said, what have you got in the suitcase? He said, my little sister, she's going too. (laughs) And that set me thinking about sometimes how much trouble children can be. So I might tell you at the beginning how much trouble they are and then say something really good about them. They are, of course, a great trouble. I know one mother who used to lock herself in the playpen. It was the only way that she could ever get peace. (laughs) And I also know of a wife who had an alcoholic husband or one who had a tendency to be alcoholic. 
And she was always amused at night to see her husband get up and go for a bottle and never take a drink himself. <laughs> and then it seemed he was always so ready and so prepared to serve someone else a drink. <laughs> then in addition to that, we noticed very often at baptisms how awkward men are when they hold a baby. Did you ever watch a man when a woman says to him, hold the baby, Bill? They never know what to do with a baby. A man's hands were never meant to hold a child. Somehow or other, their hands are like cranes. A child is always in transit. They pick the child up here and they wonder where they can put the child down. And they have various ways of holding a child. Uh, some hold children like cocktail shakers. <laughs> To have and to hold. <laughs> and then there are others who hold children like football. <laughs> and they're always looking for an opening to get rid of the ball, too. <laughs> and then there are, uh, there are others who always regard this little bundle as a kind of a mystery. They never know which end, where is it, if something was in here when it was handed to me. And in addition to that, of course, the crying of children. What a trial that is. Ever noticed how their eyes get smaller, their little noses almost become a button, but the mouth. <laughs> that is really tremendous. And now, when I talk about crying, I am on a very sensitive point here. Because I believe that I was the original and only Prince of Wales. <laughs> hate to meet relatives and friends who knew me as a baby because tradition has it and tradition must be respected. Tradition has it that I cried for the first three years of my mortal life. Honestly. That's how I got the name of Fulton. I was baptized Peter. And I cried and cried so much I was a constant burden to my father and mother and to get a little relief they used to take me to my grandparents whose name was Fulton. So I got to be known as Fulton's baby, and that's where I got the name. <laughs> now, those are some of the bad things about children. Perhaps it might be well now to say something really good about them. And I can think immediately of three good things to say about them. First of all, children rescue love from boredom. And secondly, children are the resurrection of beauty and strength. And thirdly, children reveal the mystery of fatherhood and motherhood. First of all, children rescue love from boredom. 
Love can be boring. It can produce ennui. It might happen very well that when there are only two who love, that love could be something like this, nothing but an exchange of egotisms from one to the other. Duality in love can be death. That is why in the romance of love, lovers always speak of our love. As if there was something outside of the sum of the love of both of them. They will even speak of it as something bigger than ourselves. Something that holds them together. That is God. For those who are blessed with children, it is the children. So that there is here a veritable communion of love between father, mother, and child. And that is one of the purposes of children. How dull, for example, life would be if a, a musician were always picking up a violin and a bow and never producing a melody. Or a sculptor were always picking up a chisel and applying it to marble and never creating a statue. Or a poet put pen to paper, never wrote a musical line. I wonder if the farmer would not go mad. If a short time after he had planted the seed in the springtime, if he immediately dug it up and never waited for the fruit and for the heart. no woman that ever goes into a garden. And just as soon as the buds begin to appear in the spring, cuts off the buds. Love by its very nature wants to bear some fruit. Thus it saves itself from that duality and comes near to that trinity which is the very essence of love, even the love of God himself. Well, that is triune. And those who deliberately frustrate it have been written about by the poet Davidson, who wrote, Your cruelest pain is when you think of all the honeyed treasure of your body spent. And no new life to show. Is then you understand how people lift their hands against themselves and taste the bitterest of all punishment of those whom pleasure isolates. When darkness, silence, and the sleeping world give vision scope, you lie awake. You see the pale, sad faces of the little ones who should have been your children. As they press their cheeks against your window pane, looking in with piteous wonder, homeless, famished babes, denied your wombs and bosoms.
But when love escapes this mere exchange of egotisms like two sailors shipwrecked on an island who supported themselves by taking in one another's washing. <laughs> then love is rescued from that dullness and tiresomeness because life has found its meaning. And love is then discovered to be not like that of the serpent that always lives in exactly the same plane. But love then begins to be like the bird that has an ascension of love and begins to taste its sweetest moments in the higher moments of flight. Such is the first purpose of children. And the second is the resurrection of beauty and strength. In our time, it is very common for people to think that beauty and strength can be continued in their own generation. God never intended that they should. After all, beauty and strength were given to us to serve as purposes of allurement. And that is why they are most manifest only at that age when the family ought to begin to be founded. Strength is not an enduring quality. And neither is beauty. In fact, there isn't anything that is perhaps quite as repellent to good sense as to see men grow old and yet try to appear as they were sophomores in college with their crew cut. <laughs> Manifesting an immaturity and attempting to preserve that strength which is already gone. And so it is with, with women attempting to keep a beauty of the 19 and 20, which is impossible to keep, no matter how they advertise, even this way, the solution of the problem has not been found. There was once an advertisement in a beauty parlor that read, water rusts pipes, what will it do to your face? <laughs> And even after marriage, the man who was thought to be so strong, particularly when he made end runs in the football game on Saturday afternoon, is asked to take down the screens for the winter. And he says, what are you, a cripple? <laughs> and then the beauty and the baby talk that he once thought was so cute, well, that begins to get on his nerves. Now, the answer is not to be cynical, because God intended that beauty and strength should be preserved, but not in our generation, but in another. And hence, when the boy is born, the father begins to revive in all of his strength. And then, in the language of the poet Virgil, from my heaven descends a worthier race of men. And then, as the daughters are born, the wife begins to revive in all of her beauty. And thus, beauty and strength are carried on to another generation. And the chalice of father and mother is so overflowing now with their mutual love that they can look to another generation 
and see themselves strong and see themselves beautiful. And those who were begotten of their love. And then all of the children become as so many beads in a rosary of love and chaining and that sweetest of all slavery, which is the love of a family and the happiness of a home. I might make one exception about people who are no longer 18, primping and dressing up. I read the other day in a Detroit paper about a woman, 86 years of age, who every Tuesday night primps her hair, puts on her best dress, and she says, I'm going to listen to Bishop Sheen. <laughs> God love you, wherever you are. Then, of course, fathers have worries when the boys are strong. Just think of the worries of a father who has only girls. <laughs> and here is a magnificent poem by Ogden Nash. He has entitled it, A Song to be Sung by the Father of Infant Female Children. <laughs> My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. Contrarywise, my blood runs cold when little boys go by. For little boys as little boys, no special hate I carry. But now and then they grow to men, and when they do, they marry. No matter how they tarry, eventually they marry. And swine among the pearls, they marry little girls. <laughs> oh, somewhere, somewhere an infant plays with parents who feed and clothe him. Their lips are sticky with pride and praise, but I've begun to loathe him. Yes, I loathe with a loathing shameless the child who to me is nameless. The bachelor child in his carriage gives never a thought to marriage, but a person can hardly say night before he will hunt him a wife. <laughs> I never see an infant male sleeping in the sun without I turn a trifle pale and think, is he the one? <laughs> oh, first he'll want to crop his curls, and then he'll want a pony, and then he'll think of pretty girls and holy matrimony. <laughs> He'll put away his pony and sigh for matrimony. A cat without a mouse is he without a spouse. Oh, somewhere he bubbles bubbles of milk and quietly sucks his thumbs. His cheeks are roses painted on silk and his teeth are tucked in his gums. But alas, the teeth will begin to grow and the bubbles will cease to bubble. Given a score of years or so, the roses will turn to stubble. <laughs> He'll sell a bond or he'll write a book and his eyes will get that acquisitive look and raging and ravenous for the kill, he'll boldly ask for the hand of Jill. <laughs> the infant whose middle is diaper Jill will want to marry my daughter Jill. <laughs> oh, sweet be his slumber and moist his middle. My dreams, I fear, are in fantasiddle. A fig for embryo Lohengrin. I'll open all his safety pins. I'll pepper his powder, salt his bottle, give him readings from Aristotle. <laughs> I love that line. Stand for his spinning. 
Sand for his spinach I'll gladly bring, and Tabasco sauce for his teething ring, and an elegant, elegant alligator to play with in his perambulator. <laughs> then perhaps he'll struggle through fire and water to marry someone else's daughter. <laughs> All that applause belongs to Ogden Nash. And finally, a child reveals the mystery of fatherhood and motherhood. Love is never satisfying when one feels that he has hit bottom. Where there are no veils to be lifted, no doors to be opened, no new pages to be turned. It is then that some look for substitutes. And in vain does one think that by picking up a series of violins, he will produce the melody of life. Rather, the great joy of life comes from deepening a mystery. And a child deepens a mystery. First of all, a child makes a husband a father. And a fatherhood is a refraction of divine paternity. From whom all fatherhood and all blessings come, child that is taught to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, is also the one who understands my Father who is in his home. And then, too, the child makes the wife a mother. A woman is truly a mother when she brings to creation the gifts of God. The word of a woman is fiat, submission, the communication of life. Man cooperates with nature, but a woman cooperates with God. And it is the child that makes her a mother. And then, when the child makes both, he produces fathercraft and mothercraft. Oh, you parents, do you realize that your children are given to you with so much plastic clay? You are to mold them with your own hands. In juvenile court, you say, I can do nothing with my child, but did you ever do anything for him? And every child is made a crown, made for that child in heaven. And woe betide the parents. There's not a head for that crown. You remember the story of Leonardo da Vinci, who painted once the Christ child, and years later, the Last Supper? He searched for someone who would represent Judas, and lo and behold, it turned out to be the one who had posed for the Christ child. Something can happen to children. There's not the art and the science, the fathercraft and mothercraft, and the hope. And then the parents will bring them to be generated anew, to be christened, so that they are not only their children, they become the children of God. We'll teach them about their guardian angels. And we'll teach them to say, Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side, to light, to guard, to rule and guide. I'm not the only one who has an angel. I'm the only one who admits it publicly. <laughs> and you may wonder now, why should I talk on children, I who have forfeited all of this, 
by my life, but because it is also possible to impress the images of mind and spirit upon other people, as well as the image of a body. And it is my life to try to impress the image of a spirit upon others, to beget them in God. And I wish that I had thousands and thousands of more children in God. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at one 866 357 4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. Dot com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. And our program is entitled, Your Life is Worth Living. And uh, those words are very true. Your life is worth living. God has a plan for each and every one of you. And so I hope you've brought a friend today. I hope uh, you continue to spread the word of this a new time slot for us here on Sunday mornings. Uh, for over five years, we were uh, scheduled Monday evenings here at CKWR. And uh, again, they asked us to come on Sunday mornings. And I thought, what a great opportunity to have a Sunday school. Now, don't get me wrong. Monday evenings is also a great time for catechism and learning our faith. But uh, this Sunday time slot fits beautifully. And so I want to welcome all of the new listeners who... Uh, of course, have listened to various programs over the years on Sunday here with us, but uh, yours truly is here now to serve and to share uh, these beautiful reflections with you. And so now I want to, uh, of course, uh, continue this catechism series with you. Uh, there's actually 50 lessons in this uh, um, series, and uh, it was, of course, the go-to tapes many years ago uh, when cassette tapes were popular. Bishop Sheen recorded these talks on vinyl, and many people bought the albums uh, that had, uh, of course, the 50 lessons. So we're going to, of course, uh, sh share with you these digitally remastered copies uh, done by my good friend at uh, FultonSheen.com. And uh, Anthony spent time taking the crackles and the pops out of the old recordings and making it clear and crisp. And uh, you can find his recordings on his website, www fultonsheen.com and own your own personal Fulton Sheen Library. And so we're going to share lesson number 17. It's entitled The Body of Christ, of course, which is the church. 
And so please sit back and relax and enjoy Bishop Sheen. Peace be to you. After having reviewed the life of our blessed Lord and also his revelation of himself as the Son of God and also his bond to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, we now come to the subject of the church. What do you think of when you first hear the word church? An institution? An organization? A kind of an administrative body? Well, you are to be very much excused if you think of it that way, because it's partly our own fault. It is the way we have too often presented the church. Now we will talk about the church in other words, namely in terms of the people of God and as the mystical body of Christ. As we look at history as revealed in the Bible, not as the inspired word of God as yet, but as an historical record, we find that it is God that is always in search of man. It is not man in search of God. Man does seek God, but not with the same intensity with which God seeks man. Just think of how much the thought of man and the love of man is in the mind and heart of God. What is the first reflex thought that we find in sacred scripture of God? Not the first description of him creating the world, but the first thought that he has about himself and within himself. You would almost guess that, well, his first thought would be about his life and his truth and his love. And yet, that is not the first thought in Scripture. Open Genesis and you will find it. God's first thought about himself is, let us make man. Think of it as if God could not exist without man. God does not need man to complete himself, to fulfill a need. But he needs man as a kind of a gift. That is to say, he must have someone to whom he can show his love. Therefore, the first monologue that we touch in sacred scripture is the monologue of God thinking about man. What are the first dialogues in Scripture? The first question in Scripture is God saying to man, Adam, where art thou? Man, why are you hiding? Why do you run from me? And the next dialogue is about the neighbor. 
God says to Cain, Where is thy brother, Abel? God is immersed in the thought of man. And here we find the first two laws, really, of God, love of God and love of neighbor, in the two questions, man, where art thou? Where is thy brother? Now, this was at the beginning of humanity. And we find, therefore, that humanity receives a call from God to intimate communion with himself. God will not let man go. But how does he deal with humanity when humanity begins to multiply? In this way, out of all of the peoples of the world, he chooses one people who are to be what he calls his people. And this group, this corporation, this special people, are to be the means of bringing salvation to everyone else in the world. Now, who were his people? His people were the people of Israel. And he called them first through Abraham. And he governed them through Moses. He ruled them through the judges and the kings. He threatened, he pleaded, he coaxed, he warned, he loved through the prophets. And over and over in the Old Testament, we find that God who loves humanity deals with them through this particular group. And in his own words, God says in the book of Exodus, You shall be my peculiar possession above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a priestly kingdom. A holy nation. And again God speaks and says... You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. And through the centuries, these facts stand out. God has a special name for his people. He calls them in Hebrew a kahal. We will often use that word. It means God's elect, his chosen ones. Israel. The word is used about 200 times in the Old Testament. Later on, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, that word kahal was translated by ecclesia. Ecclesia in Greek means church. We get the word of ecclesiastical from it. Hence, whenever you hear the word kahal, or people of God, you may think of it in Greek as ecclesia, or in English as church. That's the first point. Secondly, God always dealt with his people through one man whom he appointed as head and as representative. Abraham at one time, Isaac another, Jacob, Moses, Kings and prophets. 
And thirdly, because Israel was his people, he made a treaty with them, a pact, a covenant, and agreement. This involved mutual obligations. The Hebrew word for covenant is berith. You've often heard that word. It appears 275 times in the scripture. And berith means that they owed something to God. And God in his turn would bless them. And as he said, above all the nations of the earth they would be blessed. Israel was therefore to be his witness that God had placed them in the world. That the plan that he had for the salvation of all mankind would be effected through them. And finally, you've heard this when we spoke about all of the prophecies concerning our blessed Lord. And finally, that the fulfillment would come the day that Christ himself would appear. This would be the perfection of all of the prophets. This is why the people of God were chosen. To be the vehicle. To be the seed. Out of which redemption would come to the world. And finally one day. When the fullness of time came. Christ did appear. And when he appeared. There was fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah's. Or rather Ezekiel it was. Who said. I myself. Will seek my sheep. And I will visit them. So now God appears in the form of human nature. Takes upon himself. The form of a man. One day, a beautiful woman, a virgin, brought a child to an old man. It was in the temple of Jerusalem. The old man's name was Simeon. He had often said a prayer, a prayer that many Jews were saying in those days because they knew that the time was near for the coming of the Messiahs. We already mentioned that Herod, who was not a Jew but an Edomite, was not surprised when the wise man came. He said he would bring gifts, but the gift that he promised to bring was the sword. Now there are some flowers that open only in the evening. Simeon, the old man, was one of those flowers. And imagine the ecstasy of this old man when he embraced this child and his first words were, Now I'm ready to die. This is the end. This is all I've lived for. And he speaks to the mother. And he says, Now notice how he speaks of Israel and the Gentiles. 
Remember that we said that the people of God were to be a light to all the nations of the world? Now Simeon looks backwards and forwards. He looks backward to the people of God of which he was a priest. And he says, this is the glory of thy people Israel, this babe. Then he looks forward. This is the light which shall give revelation to the Gentiles. In other words, he saw in this babe, the maker of a new covenant, founder of a new kahal. He also saw in him a sign to be contradicted by the very people to whom he came to bring salvation. So that this Christ who was born was not, as you see, just someone who came by surprise. He's related to all of the people of God through the centuries. And if you pick up the Gospels and read the two genealogies of our blessed Lord, you will find that in one instance, the genealogy of our blessed Lord goes back to Abraham. And another genealogy goes back to Adam. What does this mean? It means that this new head of the kahal, this expected of the nations, this God-made man, this Christ, is related to the people of God were to be the instrument of the salvation of the world. When then in sacred scripture you come to a hearing about our blessed Lord founding a church or a kahal, people of God. You must not think that this is an innovation. Everything that our Lord is saying is related to this people of God in the Old Testament. And see how he sustains that relationship. First of all, he chooses 12 apostles. It is very likely that they were even related to the 12 tribes in some way. And out of those 12 tribes, or rather those 12 apostles representative of 12 tribes, he chose one as his representative. We will find out his, his name later. Looking back on the old law, he also said, I came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So he gathers these new people around himself in order to renovate and revivify Israel, to make a new Israel. And if the old Israel would reject him, he would not eventually reject Israel. Prophet say in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament says that we of the new kahal, we the new people of God, are only a branch that is grafted on to the tree. We are not the root. Israel is the root. St. Paul foretells a day when the root will be glorified. In other words, it will surpass the Gentiles in glory when Israel returns. 
When our Lord does come to use the word kahal, he calls it my kahal. I will found my church, my people. And the bond that Christ establishes with this new kahal is not a bond of, uh, not a bond of law. It's a bond of love. And the very best moment for establishing this bond was, of course, a banquet. Where his twelve sat about him in love. Just as Moses often sprinkled blood upon the people as a sign of covenant, so he said he will make a new covenant, a new pact, a new testament. There will not be the sprinkling of the blood of goats and bullocks and sheep. He gave his own blood and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, the new testament, the new pact. This is the bond that will unite all of my people together. Now do you see that the church is not an institution? Maybe you've often said, I do not want an institution standing between God and me. Well, that's right. After all, you have a right to communication with God. But the church is not that kind of an institution standing between you and God. Israel was not between the world and God. Think of the church in somewhat the fashion of a body. Do you ever say, for example, as you listen to me, I do not want your lips and your eyes and your hands and so forth standing between me and you? After all, how can I communicate anything to you? Except by something visible and tangible and and carnal? Anything visible that you see about me or will ever see about me is nothing but a sign of an invisible soul. The carnal is the token of the spiritual. So when our blessed Lord came to this earth and took upon himself a human body, you would not say, I do not want this body of Christ standing between me and my love of Christ. Why, that's the only way. Of the incarnation, namely to communicate the divine through the human. The human nature of our blessed Lord, this body of his, was the instrument of his divinity. When therefore our blessed Lord came as priest and as prophet and as king, everything he did was done through the power and the means of this human nature. If you heard our blessed Lord speak on the shores of Galilee, you would not say, oh, it's only a human tongue that is speaking. He said to you, I am the truth. You say, how do I know God is speaking to me? That's why he became man. If he said to you, I forgive your sins, 
Would you say, all I see is a lifted hand and a movement of lips? No, his body was the means by which he made himself applicable to us. Therefore, the best way to understand that the church is not just an institution is to understand it somewhat in the fashion of the body of Christ. And that's the way that St. Paul understood the church. And that's the way we have it in sacred scripture. Our blessed Lord, all through the Gospels, is saying that he's going to establish a new body, a new car, new people of God. After all, when people are united for a given purpose, they are a body. Now, our Lord did not use the word body precisely because his own physical body was before everyone. He used the word kingdom because that was a word that the Jews could understand. But when St. Paul was talking to the pagans, he had to use a word which was more understandable by them, namely the body. But our Lord communicated exactly the same idea. He said that, that the new people that he would communicate and unite with himself would be related to him as branches and vines. He said, you are the branches. I am the vine. And the truth that he had, he said he would give to them. My truth I give to you. My power I give you. And also he communicated the power to forgive sins. So our blessed Lord said that he would develop and form a new body, which would be very small at first, like a mustard seed, and then grow and spread throughout the entire world. But what was the nucleus of this body? Well, we've already hinted at that. The nucleus, raw material of this new body, was the apostles. Now, just as my own human body, for example, is made up of millions and millions of cells, and yet it is one because vivified by one soul, governed by an invisible mind, presided over by a visible head, so all who later on will be incorporated into this new body of Christ will be one because vivified by one soul, the Holy Spirit, governed by an invisible mind, Christ in heaven, and presided over by a visible head, namely the one whom Christ chose at the beginning bear the keys of his kingdom. Therefore, this body of Christ was to be the prolongation of his incarnation. Our Lord was to grow and expand, very much like a cell. We sometimes think that a church is formed by all of us coming together and saying, oh, let's get together and form a church, just like we form a tennis club. 
That's not the way the body of Christ was formed. People of God were not formed that particular way. God's power was in the midst of his people. Even your human body, when it began to be, was not formed that particular way. It was formed from, from cells of life. And those cells expanded outward. So this body of Christ doesn't grow like a house grows by the addition of brick to brick and door to door and wall to wall. It grows like a cell. First there is this divine life that came to this earth, namely God in man. Starts with this humanity of Christ, this body of his. Now he says he's going to form this new body. It will not be a, a moral body or a political body, so he has to give it a new name. And the name that has been given to it through the centuries is mystical to indicate that the unity that binds it together does not come from men. It comes from his spirit, from himself. That was why there had to be a Pentecost. Put a soul into this body. We will see a little later on. Now these twelve apostles that our Lord gathered to himself were very much like the chemicals in a the laboratory. They were very individualistic. They were very much like, as I say, the hydrogen and phosphates and sulfur in and, and a laboratory. In fact, we have in a laboratory 100% of all the chemicals that enter into the constitution of a baby. Why can we not make a baby? Because we lack that vivifying, unifying power, which is a soul. So the apostles, disparate, disconnected, disjointed, they could not form this body of Christ. They could be formed only by Christ sending his spirit into them. And as through the physical body of our Lord, it was God who taught. It was God who covered. It was God who sanctified. So through this new body of Christ, this church, his new kahal, his new people of God, the new Israel, he will teach. He will govern. He will sanctify. This is the church. See, it's a long way from an institution. Sometime, pick up the Acts of the Apostles and read the story of the conversion of St. Paul. Now, St. Paul was a member of the old Kahal, old Israel. And he therefore would not accept the revelation of the new Kahal, and he started to persecute the church. The time is well within 10 years after the ascension of our blessed Lord into heaven. That's very important to remember. Now the church is beginning to spread through the entire Roman Empire. And Paul decides to go into Syria and to persecute the church there in Damascus. By this time... The early members of the church were very much disturbed by this learned Saul, for that was his Jewish name. I'm sure that many members of the church in those days 
was to pray to the good Lord that he would send a good coronary thrombosis to Paul. And he must have said, Dear Lord, send us someone to answer Saul. He heard their prayers. He sent someone to answer Saul. He sent Paul. That was his Roman name. So on his way to Damascus, a light shines round about him. He's thrown from his beast. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 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 Why does our Lord say that? He's in heaven. How can anybody persecute him? No wonder St. Paul asks, Who art thou? And our Lord answers, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Saul must have thought within himself, after all, I'm only persecuting the members of the church in Damascus. How can I be persecuting you? How? If someone steps on your foot, do not your lips complain? Someone strikes your body, does not your head protest? Christ, the Son of the living God, is the head of the mystical body, the church. Therefore, when anyone struck that body, they struck him. And that is why our Lord protested. What then is the church? It's the people of God. His call. His ecclesia. His body. Prolonged through the centuries. In us, his poor members. The church is the mystery of God in the world for the salvation of the world. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, Please stay tuned for the Lutheran Hour coming up followed by my good friend Pat Murphy, who will be sharing with us some great uh, joyful country music and some powerful meditations from sacred scripture. Uh, The word of God is powerful. (laughs) Trust me on that. And so I will see you in two hours. And until that time, of course, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.